welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. At the beginning of our discussion this evening, we want to uh, pay tribute to the life of Professor Charles Day, uh, NCCU alum and the uh, former dean of the NCCU School of Law, who transitioned on Christmas morning. Dean Day was a magna cum laude graduate of NCCU, graduated with honors from Columbia University School of Law, and was the distinguished Henry Brandeis Professor of Law Emeritus at the UNC Chapel Hill School of Law following his retirement in 2014. We give honor to the many outstanding community, professional, and academic accomplishments that he achieved during his life. He is worthy of commendation. Typically, when we enter into the new year, we are hopeful and prayerful for new, upbeat, and positive beginnings. As we enter into 2023, however, there seems to be few expectations that this year will be productive, positive, and have the possibilities of advancing. This is especially true for African Americans and people of color, as most recent political, economic, and social experiences suggest that, once again, our interests will be under attack in an expanding, racially divisive America. Joining us to discuss some of the legal and political expectations for 2023 are two of our colleagues and regular guests on this program, Professor Jarvis Hall, of the NCCU Political Science Department and Professor Donald Corbett of the North Carolina Central University School of Law. So to our guests, uh, thank you for uh, for joining us this evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Well, let us just kind of start off uh, as we get your assessments of uh, the past, present or the good, the bad and the ugly uh, going uh, forward. And I guess there are many ways to, to start this discussion, but I want to try to start it by looking back. That's an old Sam Cook song. Looking back at some of the uh, troubling consequences from 2021 and 2022, which might give some context uh, to uh, your uh, assessments, your uh, analysis and expectations going forward in uh, 2023. So starting with uh, Professor uh, Hall, can you talk about some of the uh, major troubling points uh, that leads us to where we are today in trying to come up with uh, some projections for the upcoming year? So. Uh, overarching everything that has been going on, especially politically, um, 
in uh, in America for the last several years has been our concern with our democracy. And uh, quite frankly, we know that uh, that has been enhanced uh, because of the uh, presidency of uh, Donald Trump and how that has exacerbated uh, the divisions that already exist in America. Uh, America is a very diverse nation uh, and we expect to uh, have differences. But when the differences uh, lead to us not being able to move forward as a country, then that becomes very problematic. And when you have people at the top who are threatening our democracy or uh, showing a lack of faith in our elections uh, and how they are run, uh, and bringing into question uh, uh, the results of elections to such an extent that a, a group of people running for office actually uh, ran on that particular platform. <clears throat> and of course, when we look at the results of uh, uh, the January 6th committee and uh, what that investigation revealed, it is very troubling about uh, what was going on uh, with regard to um, uh, our democracy and the extent to which people, very powerful people at the very top of our government, uh, the extent to which they were willing to go in order to uh, really destroy uh, the will of the people. Uh, they uh, uh, ranging from violence uh, to, uh, to perpetrating fake electors uh, for the electoral college. And that was very troubling and going forward, uh, we have to have that at the uh, forefront of uh, how we try to repair what is uh, going on with, uh, with America. And I say repair, America's never been exactly the ideal democracy as we know. So, but just in terms of moving forward as opposed to moving backwards. All right, Professor Corbin. Yeah, the only thing I would add to what Professor Hall uh, said so eloquently is it, it feels like, or at least I can't remember in my memory, a time where we have had less faith as a society in our institutions and the institutions that are supposed to guide us. So whether it's in the field of science, where we had so many COVID deniers, which exacerbated the harm caused by that virus, or uh, the field of education, where people now are demanding more say-so over the curriculum and what people teach in the classroom to our governmental infrastructure, which, uh, which Professor Hall just described. We just don't seem to have as a society a huge amount of faith in some of the foundations that we've traditionally depended upon to make our, make our country go. So the question becomes, you know, if we don't get a hold of some of this uh, problem with infrastructure and misinformation about that infrastructure. You know, where do we where do we go as a country, and and that affects really, I think, all aspects of of our society. You know, that that that's, those, those are some interesting uh, comments. And, and and before I get to the assessments, uh, Professor Hall made a point about this uh, diversity, and uh, there being a, I guess, a kind of negative reaction to the. Uh, diversity and efforts to uh, diversify all as aspects of American life. Uh, and, and that raised in my mind the question, is there too much diversity in America today such that 
uh, we're not able to deal with it all. Uh, Professor Hall, start with you again. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I was hoping you go to Don uh, for that one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, too much diversity. I mean, uh, even within the general uh, social groupings that we have and ethnicities that we have, we have diversity within those. And so um, uh, exactly how much diversity is enough uh, I think diversity is good. Uh, uh, it, it can lead to um, uh, good outcomes, uh, varied, uh, varied ideas about how things should go. Uh, it could lead to a sharing of, uh, of uh, cultures and, and things of that nature. But I think they, all, they always have to be a glue uh, to hold the American people together. And uh, part of that glue, just as Don said, uh, would be our basic trust in our institutions. Uh, and that has dwindled over time, and especially uh, the Supreme Court, for example, but also uh, the Congress, as well as the presidency. We always had a general faith, uh, even though uh, that faith didn't always uh, pay out for all groups in America. Uh, we always had a general faith, though, that uh, we were a uh, budding democracy, an experimental democracy, a work in progress democracy. Uh, but uh, what we uh, are finding is that um, we have reached a point where, um, as I said, people are questioning um, whether our democracy works, and even to a large extent, working against uh, the democratic impulses and forces that have had a tendency to move the country forward. Okay. First Corbin. Yeah, again, not, not much to add. I, I feel like when we've had our best moments as a country, it's been when we have made certain things accessible to more people, whether it was the right to vote or the right to be employed in certain positions or, you know, whatever the case may be. We've always been able to expand it and, and to, to groups that haven't had it and in this search of, of becoming a more perfect union. Uh, but it's clear to me that there are always going to be factions of our society that do not believe that that makes for a better America. And I think for those people, whether it's diversity of color or diversity of culture or diversity of religion or diversity of thought, you know, whatever whatever framework you want to put on it, I think uh, there will always be pushback about that if that either runs uh, counter to what those folk believe America is and should look like, or whether they feel threatened by more people being able to embrace the dream as we have listed in, in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So I think as long as we have the, those kinds of factions, and, and again, as Professor Hall and Professor Joyner stated earlier, when you have representatives of those factions now in positions to lead the government, then it can't help but but have a really, really detrimental impact, or at least the potential for a detrimental impact on how our society operates as a whole. Well, in, in light of you know your, 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 your questions about democracy and the faith in the democracy, I want to kind of just look uh, uh, zero in on uh, North Carolina where we have uh, an incoming uh, North Carolina Supreme Court. 
that now has a uh, 5-2 Republican majority, which was a change from a 4-3 Democratic majority and uh, signs that uh, there is an increase of uh, support for uh, increased governmental powers. And then looking at the legislature uh, in North Carolina, where it has moved to a, um, a majority Republican in, uh, control uh, House, I mean, Senate, and a uh, uh, partial uh, complete control of the House, uh, needing just one uh, vote. Uh, how, how do you how do you see the impact of those changes in the upper echelon of the democratic process in going forward uh, with uh, uh, what I guess would be your ideal of what the democracy should uh, should look like? And let's start with Professor Corbett on that one. I think the changes are are very very worrisome. Uh, as you mentioned, now the Republicans have a majority on the highest court in the state, and I think that could mean potentially any number of things. You know, primarily because it could lead to the overturning of cases that had been that had really been made along party lines. And, and in many instances that would have been beneficial to uh, African-Americans in the state, the ones I'm thinking of right away are the case out of Hope County where the Supreme Court ordered that the state put hundreds of millions of dollars toward public education. I think that with the new Republican kind of supermajority in the Senate and being just shy of the supermajority in the House, I think what you're going to see now is a much greater emphasis from that body on the concept of school choice and parental choice because they've been unhappy with the way maybe the education system functioned during COVID. So I think you'll see more of that. And, and again, we tend to lose out in those circumstances. Or uh, the other one that comes to mind right away is if the court is called upon to evaluate how the legislature has redrawn the district lines. Uh, and many of those gerrymandered districts, uh, obviously in the past, have been proven in court to have been intentionally, <laughs> intentionally uh, injurious to to black voters in the state by packing them all into some districts or minimizing their ability to impact uh, the influence of the vote in other districts. So now that the court has flipped, so to speak, I think it could end up cementing some of the things which obviously that I mentioned that obviously have a domino effect on on people of color generally and black people in specific. Okay. Professor Hall. Yeah, I, my concern, of course, also is with the uh, legislature um, and the uh, increased majority um, for the Republican Party uh, in uh, both the uh, House and the, uh, uh, the Senate. Uh, almost reaching super majorities in both houses. Uh, just as you said, by one vote in the uh, House, they are short of a super majority. And to me, what that means is that when we look at maps that we see on television or read in newspaper articles that show uh, states uh, that uh, have been engaged in uh, significant voter suppression, and we know, of course, that North Carolina has uh, uh, an infamous history in terms of voter suppression. 
but in this last round, uh, it seemed that North Carolina uh, uh, wasn't as bad as some other states, uh, Florida and uh, Georgia in particular, uh, uh, Texas also, uh, in, in terms of voter suppression. I think because they have increased their majorities that Republicans will feel less constrained uh, to engage in those kinds of things because they know that the governor might not uh, be able to um, uh, go with a sustained uh, veto uh, if he uh, chose to veto such things. The, the same, I have the same concern about uh, uh, reproductive rights uh, for women and, and for families in general. Uh, and what the legislatures could do, uh, or what our legislature could do in particular, uh, to uh, uh, constrain the reproductive rights of uh, of North Carolina families, and and so with this change in the majorities, I think that there's a possibility that we may see more action on the part of legislators there. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we are talking about uh, projections and expectations for uh, 2023. Uh, and we are talking with uh, two of our uh, colleagues and uh, regular guests that we have here on the Legal Legal Review, and that's uh, Professor Jonas Hall, who is with the uh, NCCU Political Science Department, and Professor Donald Corbett, who is at the uh, NCCU School of Law. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion. We're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to 1. facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and 2. increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, legal, legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our discussion with uh, Professor Thomas Hall, uh, who's with the uh, Political Science Department at North Carolina Central University, 
and uh, Professor Don Corbett, who is with the NCCU School of Law. And we're looking into uh, 2023, starting with a, a look back uh, to see what, uh, what our background uh, is. And we kind of talked a little bit about uh, North Carolina and uh, what lies ahead uh, here in, uh, in North Carolina for uh, African-Americans and racial minorities. Uh, it's uh, a difficult uh, discussion uh, to have. You, you mentioned uh, this notion of uh, healthcare and the availability of uh, insurance and medical attention. Uh, what do you foresee occurring at the legislative level uh, in the uh, delivery of uh, healthcare services? Uh, for people in, uh, in in our community. Let's start with uh, uh, Professor Corbett. Yes, sir. So uh, for people who don't know, the Senate, the House Senate voted to expand Medicaid overwhelmingly uh, last year. I think the vote was something like 44 to 2 or 44 to 3. I can't remember exactly, but it was an overwhelmingly uh, positive vote, because what that means is that if the House is supposed to take up that vote this year, hopefully, and if it's passed, it could expand health care coverage for, for thousands of state residents. And this is especially important for, for low-income parents with children, because a lot of them, uh, they, they don't qualify for Medicaid. They haven't in the past been able to qualify for Medicaid because they made too much money but then they don't make enough money to be able to afford private health insurance because of the cost. So expanding uh, Medicaid eligibility in a way that allows those people to be covered at a time when we know that healthcare costs and inflation are just choking people, uh, it's really, really important. And, and what's interesting is you have this, this uh, reversal of fortune, so to speak, because the Medicaid expansion was part of the initial Affordable Care Act that was passed during the Obama administration, and a lot of states run by Republican leadership pushed back hard against it. They won at the Supreme Court level. But uh, as we know, history shows us that politicians don't love anything more than items that are popular with voters. And, and shockingly, or to at least their surprise, people actually like having health insurance. So you've seen an about face in several states, and, and North Carolina looks like the latest. So again, that vote needs to clear the House, but at least right now, it looks like it will. And obviously, you know, better benefits, more coverage for low-income people will have a positive effect on any number of people, especially people of color in our state. Mm -hmm. Professor Hall. Yeah, uh, I agree with Don, of course, and uh, I think this would be a good thing. Um, it's, it's, it's very late here in North Carolina, and uh, there are untold people who have probably uh, suffered unnecessarily. Uh, because of a lack of uh, access to uh, adequate health care. Um, but uh, uh, health care is one of the fundamental human rights, I think, that most people agree on. Uh, I think when we had the debate over Obamacare, that the idea of health care being a fundamental right uh, was one even though there was great pushback uh, politically, but uh, uh, also generally there was an understanding that everybody uh, who is an American 
uh, should have adequate health care. And uh, so I think that that, uh, I, that, that, uh, that discussion has been won to some extent, but at the same time, we always know there's pushback from those who uh, view uh, this as a, uh, an expansion of the role of government and uh, therefore they want to, uh, uh, as opposed to moving forward, move backward. And I, you know, I think that is uh, very good news that the North Carolina General Assembly is um, seeing the wisdom of expanding Medicaid. Uh, I, I want to get your both of your thoughts, though, on whether North Carolina is, in fact, a swing state, a purple state. And of course, when President Obama took the state in uh, 2008, that was, you know, kind of like the, the pinnacle of seeing North Carolina shifting. <laughs> Since that time, though, we have not really seen um, the, the Democrats or more progressive um, politicians winning, even at the statewide level. And so, you know, these past two election cycles, as we have discussed and kind of lamented, uh, all of the judicial races have gone to Republicans. Uh, we had Sherry Beasley, who lost pretty handedly in the statewide election for the Senate position. And even though North Carolina is often, you know, labeled as a swing state in the most recent elections, we haven't really seen that at the statewide level. Uh, so I want to get your both of your thoughts on if that is. Um, a reflection of lack of engagement on the part of those that that are really kind of dealing with real life issues. And, you know, so we're not having the type of engagement where we would see um, it reflected in the polls. And Don, let's start with you. Well, as, as you were talking, I was trying to think of my color wheel situation and like what's between purple and and red and I was terrible then I'm terrible now <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> I don't I don't think that I, I really I get it I get the designation as a quote-unquote potential swing state but I think that's you know we've always been kind of strange in the sense that we have had some track record at least of having democratic governors even if we have like republican uh, control of the general assembly and and then of course after two eight uh, and Obama winning the state narrowly there, then the thought was absolutely, yes, we are now sliding in the direction where we see Georgia sliding to some extent now with, with uh, Democrats being elected uh, to the two senatorial races that we've seen most now three, uh, given Warnock's win over Herschel Walker recently. And, but I think, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I think the potential to be a purple state exists more widely if you can turn out the people to vote. I think as we've had more people uh, kind of come into the state from other parts of the country, bringing more maybe progressive values with them, increasing the size of our cities, then I think you get that. But but I think part of the reason Justice Beasley lost was there just wasn't the same turnout uh, that there had been in the 2020 presidential election, specifically among Black voters. So I think now in, in, and this is, I think, in some ways, a microcosm of what's going on in the country, the, the good news about the last four to six or two to four years and the last two election cycles is that people have really gotten out and voted. 
the, the numbers of people going out to vote, despite the suppression efforts that have been made in, in state after state after state, have really, really increased. And I think now that's what's going to be the name of the game. As long as we stay a 50-50 country, 51-49 country, however you want to characterize it, it's really going to be about who can turn out those voters uh, each election. And if we get the turnout, then we can maybe become purple with a lowercase p. But if we don't get to turn out, then we're going to be like between whatever is between red and purple, whatever color that is. <laughs> and I'm sorry I'm ignorant about that. I just don't know colors. <laughs> Jarvis, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah what comes to my mind is a nice magenta uh, color. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Magenta works. <laughs> I don't know what to hear about the color. But, but uh, I think we are. And I think uh, much of the uh, uh, reasoning or even optimism surrounding that is because of the, uh, uh, the demographics that exist. It's just that when you look at a uh, election map of North Carolina, it, it, uh, uh, statewide, it's always the same. There's a lot of red, a whole lot of red, uh, and some blue. And the blue, you, you know, they're always in the same counties. Uh, the the I-85 corridor, um, uh, Charlotte, uh, way out in the west, Buncombe County, of course, that's Asheville, uh, and a few in the southern tier of, uh, of the uh, state. Um, it, it, but it, it's very, but in terms of geographical area, it's very, very red. What we have seen, though, uh, especially in the last election, is is uh, just as we sort of alluded to, is underperformance uh, by uh, certain groups uh, that could really make North Carolina more of a purple state. Um, uh, racial minorities, uh, 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 young people. Um, uh, and when I say underperformance, what I'm saying is that when we look at uh, uh, the proportion that they make up of the electorate as a whole of, of the, uh, of the, of the uh, voter uh, pool as a whole, their turnout is always lower uh, proportionately than that. And so if they would turn out in proportion to uh, what they make up in the electorate as a whole, uh, then it could really uh, make a difference, uh, especially in uh, some uh, statewide elections. And I think, too, this whole notion of engagement that April brought up uh, is very important. And when we talk about engagement, we have to talk about uh, not just going after uh, independent voters. Uh, independent voters have a tendency to actually vote at uh, lower levels than partisans. And so we always have this uh, uh, move to capture the independent vote, uh, whereas uh, political parties, especially the Democratic Party, uh, should be looking more at mobilizing uh, what is their quote unquote natural base. And in doing so, they have to speak to the issues that those people are concerned about. And I don't think they are speaking uh, necessarily loud enough about those particular issues. And a lot of those are economic issues, uh, 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 issues of education, issues of healthcare, uh, and those kinds of things that really make people who might not ordinarily vote say, oh, there's something in this election for me, and I need to get out and vote, and I need to bring some other people 
from my community out to vote too. And I think that those kinds of efforts have been lacking uh, in terms of getting out the uh, base and especially on the Democratic side. If we did that, which is very, very possible, uh, we have models for that, just as said in Georgia, uh, that uh, it could make a difference in North Carolina, not turning it necessarily to blue, but certainly to uh, purple or a nice bright magenta color. Well, you know, in, in, in light of that discussion, let me raise this question. Have, have African-Americans given up on the need to participate in this democracy since they have not received benefits from their past participation? I, I think given up is, it might be just a little bit strong, but it ain't far off base because I think when you think about for instance, how Biden got to office. That was largely on the strength of, of the Black voters and Black women voters in particular. It just, it just was. And I feel like when you think about the things that were important to our community, for instance, the issue of criminal justice reform, uh, what returns have we received in that really, really important area that's, that's germane to our day-to-day? And, and I think you can't ask people, but so many times to keep going back to the well over and over and promising this delivery and then coming up short on that promise and then expecting them to continue to turn out in large numbers. And again, as I referenced earlier, I think that may have in some ways been impactful on Justice Beasley's race, as well as other races across the country. So I think it's not just about you know, showing up at campaign time, I think you need to deliver a little bit more intentionally than has been the case, uh, certainly at the federal level. I'm not sure the state level, the dynamics are quite the same, but certainly at the at the federal level. Uh, and we know there are complications involved with that, but, but, it, but I think you at least have to show the effort and that it's being prioritized. And absent that, then I think you may see the same thing in the future with Black voters that you appear to be seeing with Hispanic voters in places like Florida, who are now starting to move away from the Democratic Party and toward the Republican Party. And, and the margins are too small for Democrats to allow that to happen. Yeah, I don't think uh, like citizens, um, and I use that word because we're talking about voters and non-voters, um, uh, have given up. Uh, I think, uh, especially when we look at young people, uh, they are uh, engaged in other ways. Uh, they're engaged in social media. Uh, uh, they're engaged in uh, uh, in a lot of protest activities when they happen. Uh, so it shows there is concern. It shows that they know they have a role to play. Uh, somehow in trying to uh, make things work in our democracy. And so I don't think they have given up, but there is a great deal of skepticism. And uh, just as Don was saying, uh, what what has been the payoff? Uh, when we look at um, uh, the kinds of things that African-Americans really rallied around in the 2020 election, um, criminal justice reform, uh, as well as uh, uh, trying to restore uh, the uh, strength of the Voting Rights Act, um, um, trying to uh, get a hold of or control uh, of police uh, misbehavior. Um, 
what we find is that there hasn't been that payoff. Uh, when, when the Democrats talk about their successes, it's not those things because they haven't been able to move them. Now, you can say it's because of a couple of senators uh, 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 in the United States Senate, but the, but the point is uh, people, uh, black people, other people of color uh, gave overwhelming support uh, to the uh, Democratic ticket and the uh, payoff hasn't been there. Yes, they have received some of the benefits from the things that have happened, uh, but in particular, those things which really moved uh, many Blacks to participate in the 2020 election uh, and the 2022 election, um, uh, we just haven't seen the attention to those things that uh, perhaps there should be. And uh, Black folk, uh, both young and old, are paying attention to that. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about what to expect in 2023. And and in doing that, we've been looking back at what the history of North Carolina and North Carolina politics have, have looked like, the current state of our state's politics. And we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what we can expect, what things and issues we should keep an eye on for 2023, both at the state level and the national level. We've been talking this hour with two of our favorite guests, Professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Political Science Department and Professor Donald Corbett of the NCCU School of Law. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Professors Don Corbett and Jarvis Hall about what we can expect in 2023. Um, I want to get both of your thoughts on, as, as we think about what to expect in 2023, I want to get both of your thoughts on disruption and um, thinking about the House of Representatives. Let's just kind of start there with with, um, 
you all sharing your thoughts. So we're at, at the time of this taping, there have been a couple of votes that have taken place at the House to select the Speaker of the House. And um, you've got to get to 219, I believe it is, and Kevin McCarthy, um, who is a Republican, the Republicans have a controlling majority in the House, has not been able to get to that number because there are some Republicans who refuse to vote for him for speaker. And so at this point, again, at the time of this taping, the House is not able to really move forward with its business at hand. And so we see a situation where you have a small group of individuals who are able to really bring kind of the functioning of the government to a standstill. Does this shed light on what we can expect for 2023, at least when we're thinking about what the national government is able to do. Uh, Jarvis, let's start with you. Um, this is going to be very problematic, I think. Um, as you said, of this taping, we, uh, as of this taping, rather, uh, we don't know who the speaker is going to be. And of course, we have to be uh, mindful of the fact that uh, the speaker does not necessarily have to be a member of the House of Representatives. Of course, that has never happened before. Nobody is necessarily predicting that. But the way things are going, since this is the first time in nearly 100 years we've moved beyond the first ballot in terms of electing the speaker, we don't know what could happen. Because uh, it appears that uh, McCarthy uh is not able to uh give enough concessions uh to this group of 19 or 20 uh people who would not vote for him and uh he needs at least four or five uh or more uh in order for him to win the speakership and so these are people however uh from the freedom caucus uh that were a part of the MAGA crowd that were a part of the the, the tea party uh, that want to disrupt government anyway. Uh, it appears to me anyway uh, uh, that they have no interest in really governing. They have no interest in trying to make sure that government works for the people. They see the government as a part of the problem. And so their aim uh, in coming into the Congress is to disrupt Congress and to just uh, say uh, no to, uh, not no to everything, that's an exaggeration, but uh, the point is uh, they are disruptors as opposed to governors. Uh, and um, I think going forward, as we try to address uh, some serious problems that still exist in this country, you still need uh, uh, bipartisan and bicarmel uh, uh, support in order to get things done. And again, when we look at uh, issues of healthcare, uh, infrastructure has been done, but there's a lot more that could be done uh, in terms of education, um, uh, voting rights, and all of those things. Uh, we need a working and functioning House of Representatives in order for that to happen. Uh, and with that group really controlling things uh, right now, uh, that doesn't appear to be something that we can look forward to. Yeah, I would concur wholeheartedly. It's, you know, I, I was thinking about it as I watched some of it unfold yesterday, and, and it's really been a, I'm going to sound like I'm attacking Republicans, I, I guess, because I am, but 
when you when you when I think about like if you go back to Newt Gingrich, right, from the mid '90s and his quote unquote contract with America, it, it, while parts of this seem crazy to me, he at least that that group of Republicans at least had an agenda, right? They at least had a way that they wanted to see the country governed. And they at least were willing to work across the aisle with Democrats about some degree of, 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 of and I'll say degree because I'm not sure what the right language is, but, they, but there was a willingness, I think, to work with Democrats to solve some of the longstanding problems that they agreed upon that needed a resolution. But, but from that, we've moved to the Tea Party and now to these MAGA folk, now to these, what I would think are now coming to be the, the, the second mutation of these MAGA folk, because now more of them are in the House of Representatives. And increasingly, it just seems to me that their brand is just chaos. You know, they don't have any interest in governing. A lot of what they appear to do to me appears performative. And when you think about the problems that we have in our country, whether it's immigration reform, uh, civil rights, criminal justice reform, you know, we have very serious things that I think the government needs to address. And it seems like we just increasingly are sending more and more unserious people to deal with those problems. And, and as long as that is the formula, then I think we're going to be at this standstill, you know, even if we get beyond this, this mess with the Speaker of the House. How, how how do you see uh, the unraveling of uh, past uh, progressive uh, decisions, for instance, from the Supreme Court uh, in regards to uh, affirmative action, uh, to the anticipated uh, result of the uh, independent uh, legislative uh, redistricting uh, theories and uh, uh, other efforts to expand uh, the ability of, uh, of people to vote? Uh, how, what role is the court going to play uh, in uh, the, uh, the coming years? And, and they're not limited by two-year terms, as in the House of Representatives, or the six-year term as uh, we deal with the uh, U.S. Senate. So uh, what role is the uh, uh, Supreme Court going to be able to play in undermining uh, the progress that we've ch- achieved over the last 60 years? Don, we can start with you on that one. Okay. Uh, I think they're going to play a major role in it. Um, I really do. It's, it's, I have to, I'm, I know we're on a family show, so I'm trying to keep from using profanity, but I, but they're, I think it's very difficult to overstate uh, the, the breadth and the reach potentially that the court will have. Uh, in these areas for the foreseeable future. As you said, there are no term limits for uh, Supreme Court justices. I think Clarence Thomas is currently the oldest justice at 74. Samuel Alito is next at 72. And I guarantee you that because of the makeup of the court and their ability now to change constitutional doctrinal framework from the way it has been to a much more conservative viewpoint, uh, they have no interest in resigning anytime soon. So this the court that we have is what we're going to have for a long time. And while they say that they are not a partisan body and they are an independent entity and they're merely umpires who call balls and strikes, uh, it is very clear that the strike zone for some plaintiffs at the court is much, much, much wider 
than it is for others. And I think you'll continue to see the court issue uh, very, very uh, conservative decisions that will align in many ways with Republican talking points from the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, in some ways, you could you could cynically make the point that that's exactly what they were put there for, beginning with the Dobbs decision of last year that overturned Roe v. Wade. I have no doubt that later this spring, we will get a decision that throws out the use of race uh, in college admissions at both the undergraduate and professional school level. And I also think that we will continue to see this court protect what it believes is the concept of religious liberty against uh, really the face of everything else, even if it leads to discrimination against other groups of people. So as long as you have this particular makeup of this court, I think you're going to continue to see them align with uh, principles that that uh, fit neatly within the Republican uh, framework. Elvis? Yeah. yeah, I think there's no doubt. Uh, about the direction of this Supreme Court. This has been a uh, a plan uh, by those on the political right for decades uh, to, uh, in my judgment, to uh, pack the court with um, uh, not just conservatives, but ultra-conservatives uh, to put into play through the, uh, the judiciary, uh, the conservative agenda. And from a political side, uh, what is... Um, 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 so disheartening about that is that now we have to use our energy, our resources, which are very limited, uh, especially time, people, and money, uh, to um, fight for those things in the more democratic uh, branches of government, uh, the Congress and the, uh, and the presidency, uh, small d Democrat, uh, and, <laughs> and of course, limited Democrat, small d. Uh, but uh, we have to use our energies, our resources, in order to fight for things that we thought uh, were already won, uh, that we already had. Uh, and so uh, now we have to stave off uh, what could be the damage done by a, a ultra-conservative uh, Supreme Court. And as opposed to uh, using our resources to move forward, uh, we have to use those uh, very limited and vital resources in order to um, uh, capture, to recapture what we've had before as Americans and then try to move forward. And uh, that takes a lot of energy. And uh, that is very disappointing. Yeah, as I think about where we are today, and, and both of you have done an excellent job of kind of describing the state that we're in right now and what we can expect in 2023, I can't help but go back to 2008, right, which was 15 years ago. And the Republicans at that time, when Obama won the presidency, they came up with a plan of action. And, and where we are today is in large part because of their thinking at that time. And I think the Republicans have been masterful in the long game. I don't know if Democrats are, are have been as successful or as focused. Um, what are your thoughts about what we can begin to do now to improve the prospects of 2023, but also in thinking about, you know, 15 years, like where do we want to be, those of us that are more progressive leaning? Where do we want to be in 15 years and, and what things can we put in place now to um, start moving in that direction? 
That's it's it's the million dollar question in so many ways, uh, because you're right. I think that what we see, particularly on the Supreme Court now, is the culmination of almost a 40 or 50 year effort of of the belief that, okay, we're losing kind of the popular culture wars. So how can we reinstitute what we think should be the fabric of our country through the court system instead? And that's what they've done. And as you said, I hate to use the word masterful, but I think it's exactly right. I think that's, I think that's what's happened. Uh, and I, I really don't know, like one of the things that I would like to see, and, and there would need to be some more public momentum behind this, but I think we're starting to get to a place where maybe it happens. As long as you have this freezing uh, within the House of Representatives because of all the because of all the lack of congeniality and cooperation and the like, then it means that the Supreme Court is going to have an outsized impact on the world that we live in. And in its current iteration, that's not positive in any number of ways. So I would love to see more conversation and discussion about the idea of term limits for Supreme Court justices. And 15 years, 18 years, 20 years, whatever you want it to be, uh, it can be that. But as an example, I think Clarence Thomas, like I said, is 74 years old. He was 43 when he was confirmed. And that means he's been on the court now for 31 years. And if he lives to the age of 90, then that means that he would be on the court potentially, I'm not good at math or colors, for, for 45 or 46 years. And, and that is way, way, way too much power for one person to have over the way our country runs. So if there is a project, and I, and, and I do see Democrats um, trying to pass federal judges or trying to approve and appoint federal judges at the same rate that Trump did. So that's a positive thing. But, but for me, I still think term limits is, is one way to start uh, some of that conversation. And I just don't, I just don't know how much momentum there is out there in society, either for the fight or the, the purpose of, especially now with the way the courts can situate. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, that those on the progressive side have to uh, look boldly or act boldly uh, with things uh, uh, that they see are wrong. And term limits might be something that we at least need to have a debate about. Uh, and the same thing about uh, adding more uh, seats to the court. Uh, uh, quite frankly, we have a tendency to uh, shy away from that uh, because that's always been viewed as something negative when, when we go back to the Roosevelt years and all of that, but uh, because it's viewed as court packing. Uh, but uh, what other way do you have to uh, thwart uh, the efforts of an ultra conservative um, um, uh, Supreme Court that is threatening the uh, rights of people? The other thing, too, again, from the political side is that we do have to take a page from the playbook of uh, of Republicans uh, and those who are conservative and think about building uh, the foundations for political power at the local level, uh, on school boards, on county commissions, on, uh, on city councils, uh, uh, as well as the state level and build up, not just be concerned about the, uh, uh, the quote unquote sexy elections uh, at the national level, uh, for the uh, Congress or or for the presidency, uh, but you build that political power at the local level and you engage people at the local level. Uh, uh, all politics is local, as has been said many times. Um, and uh, when we do that, I think we engage people more. 
and uh, and those on the progressive side need to uh, do more of that to do the really hard work, uh, grassroots work, boots on the ground kind of work that can be done in order to turn things around. It won't necessarily be turned around in a month or a year, uh, but it may take uh, two or three years and people have to be patient uh, and diligent uh, about uh, this very important work of civic engagement. All right. Well, both of you have given us much to think about and to um, marinate on. And we're going to have to have you back, of course, to talk about, you know, in a couple of months to kind of talk about where we are and uh, if we are making the progress that, that we hope we do make to improve the lives of our community and society as a whole. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests, Professor Jarvis Hall of the NCCU Political Science Department and Professor Donald Corbett of the NCCU School of Law. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us, and we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.